If you are not willing to be a fool for Christ, you will quench the Holy Spirit and you will miss out on the baptism of the Holy Spirit's power. That is just the simple, basic truth. If you're not willing to be a fool for Christ, if you have these limits on your your heart of what God can and cannot do in me, then you're going to have some serious trouble entering into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If you read through the Bible, and I've made this point before, but I'll make it again. Read through the Bible, the threshold for what the Spirit cannot do in somebody and through somebody and to somebody is rather high. Especially, I mean, most of the Bible is Old Testament, but I mean, you consider the Old Testament. When the Holy Spirit came upon somebody in power, the word that the Hebrew uses is that he rushed upon them. And there's a great play on words there. The word spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and ruach, actually. And it's, it means wind. It also can mean breath. And uh, same thing for the New Testament, the word pneuma, but... It says that the wind of God rushed upon, or the breath of God, the Holy Spirit of God. And, you know, there's even parts of the Old Testament where it's, it's like the, the power of the Spirit was contagious, where folks got too close that they began to worship and sing and prophesy. And, uh, you know, even Saul, the king of Israel, was walking down the road and here came some of the prophets of God and as he listened to them sing and minister, uh, he began to prophesy too. There's places where people under the influence of the Spirit of God stripped off their clothes. Don't do that, but it's in the Bible. All right? That's, there goes that pastor trying to quench the Holy Ghost. No, just please don't do that, okay? It's not giving a a prescription. What's the point that the Bible is making is that when God encounters a person, man, there's, it's God, (laughs) What can God do in a person? It's up to him. It's whatever the Lord wants to do. We read of people having, of course, incredible dreams and visions and entering into trances by the Holy Spirit. People having visions of angels and interacting with angels. and uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing. You get to the New Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon the early church. And what did everybody else think? They're drunk. They're drunk. Pentecost. They said, what is going on with these people? Ah, they're full of new wine. And they were full of new wine, just not the way they thought, huh? This is the new wine of the Holy Spirit, and the old wineskins weren't ready for that. But, you know, I realize that there is instruction given us in 1 Corinthians 14, that all things are to be done decently and in order, and that Paul specifically wrote that letter in large measure to ensure that the church at Corinth was not allowing themselves to run wild and call it the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of sin and carnality going on there, and that was one of the things he addressed. But what Paul commended the church in Corinth for was that you come short in no gift, he said, meaning gift of the Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, then seek to edify one another. He commended them that they were eager to see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The desire to see God do amazing things is not wrong, but of itself it can become an idol just like any good thing can become an idol. But it's so, again, I come back to what I said at the beginning. If you are not willing to become a fool for Christ, you're going to place limits on what the Holy Spirit can do through you. So I don't think anything can limit the Spirit. Well, we are told in the Bible, do not quench the Holy Spirit, comparing him there to a fire that you pour water on. Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 25, 
He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. <laughs> I thank you that you hid them from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. We have a rather high view of experts these days, don't we? I think a lot of that is because more and more of us have gone to college and have been exposed to that world that has its, really has a, a veneration for experts on things. But what we learn in scripture is that somebody's credentials on matters of the flesh do not transfer to matters of the spirit. In fact, they can be a detriment to them. Somebody that is well-educated, and listen, I've got my master's of divinity, so you know, I'm pointing the finger this way too here. Someone who's well-educated, someone who fancies themselves an intellectual, someone who has done their homework, as they say, and then they come to the things of God, they begin to evaluate the things of God like they evaluate the things of the flesh. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? You might say the scholar. Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. How many people hold up things like that as marks against the Christian church? Well, I don't see a whole lot of intellectuals there. I don't see a whole lot of powerful, wealthy people. I don't see a whole lot of influential people. That is exactly how God designed it. Because God chose, verse 27, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Not plausible words of wisdom. Paul's making reference there to the high status that rhetoric and logic and philosophy had in the Greco-Roman society. Paul says, I didn't show up like one of these guys. 
And Paul had a brain that's like on the short list, like the Mount Rushmore of smart guys, right? But Paul says, that's not why I showed up. I showed up with the demonstration of the Spirit and power. I showed up preaching a simple gospel and then exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God had given to me so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, I wanted to bring you something, and God in his wisdom had led him to do this, that you could not be argued out of. Man, once God heals your body, once God sends joy down your, to your life, once the Lord baptizes you in his Holy Spirit, people can come at you with all sorts of arguments, and you can say, well, whatever. I've seen it. I've met him. I've talked to him. I know him. Even if you look at some of the great minds of the Christian faith, most of them, in fact, maybe even all of them, didn't get saved because they were reasoned into it. In fact, the reason came later. You see how Martin Luther encountered the love of God well before he articulated the doctrines of grace through faith. As mighty as his intellect was. I love the story of William Lane Craig, who's a Christian philosopher and sometimes, in my opinion, gets a little too smart for his own good. But his testimony, not raised in church, he saw a girl at school and she just was smiling and happy and kind of, he was having one of those days where it kind of bugged him. He said, I leaned over and I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, what are you always so happy for? She said, well, Jesus lives in my heart. And he said, that struck me. And I went home and I began to read my Bible. And I read the Gospel of John. And I went outside and was thinking about all these things. And I saw the stars in the heavens. And I just knew that God was there. That's not very intellectual, is it? But what was it? It was the power of God. It was the Holy Spirit at work. So, so the Bible is anti-wisdom? No. What does Paul say? Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. But it is not a wisdom of this age. Or the rulers of this age. Meaning it is not consonant with the current literature. It's not up to date. It's not stylish. It's not fashionable. But we impart, you ready for this? A secret, hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This sounds rather mystical. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Magical? No. But this is 100% legitimate scriptural mysticism, meaning this is something that is not tangible. It's not something that you can measure or calculate or theorize about. It is just there. Spiritual is a better word, but I like using mystical because it makes you shift in your seat like everybody did a second ago. We're talking about communion with God, real communion with God. That you didn't have to earn by 30 years staring at a wall and painting your face yellow and not eating anything. That God has imparted it to you. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the capital S, Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts except the Spirit of God. This passage is sort of like the John 1 of the Holy Spirit. That with God and was God. The Trinity at work here. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Hear this now. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Meaning all of the intellectual capacity he has is useless when it comes to the things of God. It might come into service later once you've believed and God begins to sanctify that. But everybody starts at that same level. They are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. Don't you love that? He's like, we're outside of all of this once you have encountered the Spirit of God. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How wonderful is that? The Holy Spirit who searches the depths of God dwells within you, giving you the mind of Christ to understand the things of God, to gain a new, you might say, a new sense, a new capacity to understand, interpret spiritual things. And to that end, all of your physical, material, natural skills mean nothing. The person that is lecturing with all the letters after his name and pontificating about wonderful big things, and the person sweeping the hallway outside, they are on equal footing before God. And one does not have an advantage over the other. That's why Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He can't comprehend that all of this that I have means nothing before God. Not that it's evil. It doesn't, doesn't add or take away anything. And that's so wonderful to think about, but there's, there's an issue with the Corinthian church and perhaps in your heart too. Because in chapter 3, Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants or babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Because all that, that difference between thinking like the world and thinking according to the spirit he just laid out, he goes, you're still thinking the old way. So there's stuff I can't teach you yet. You've placed limits on what the Holy Spirit of God can teach you because you are clinging to what you had before Christ. And in their case, it was jealousy, it was envy, it was position. You go on to read that the rich and the poor had nothing to do with each other in the Corinthian church. The rich folks, the nobility, they didn't have to work, so they would show up for church nice and early. They'd have their banquet, their, their agape banquet, ahead of time. They'd have communion together. So much communion, in fact, that by the time the poor workers showed up, they were all drunk. And they didn't have time to eat together. There are some scholars that I've read who believe that because of the way that the, the houses were organized in Roman society, you had an upper level where the rich would eat, and then you'd have a lower level where the poor would eat. They had to stay out in the courtyard. And Paul goes, you, you haven't understood anything I've told you. You're still thinking in stratified terms. You're still evaluating people according to the flesh. 
says, but we don't do anything according to the flesh any longer. So I come back again. If you're not willing to be considered a fool for Christ, you are going to miss what the Holy Spirit has for you. You'll miss it. Because you have to be... I don't even want to say thinking, but let's just say thinking according to that new capacity that God gave you. And for some of us, that part is atrophied and weak and thin, and we don't know how to use it. The Holy Spirit of God dwells among us and in our midst. He's not revealed these things to the wise. You don't study your way into it. This, if there's one concern that I have for us as a church, and I'm not like, you know, sounding the alarm, but better to talk about it before it becomes a problem. But if, if there's something I worry about at our church here is that we become so devoted to the teaching and the study of the word that the spiritual side of us starts to atrophy. That we're so excited to study and understand and make those connections and break down the background and learn new things about the Bible that we never take the time to apply them. The Pharisees had the Old Testament memorized Memorize the whole thing. Yet the, when the word made flesh was standing right in front of them, they couldn't recognize him because these things are spiritually discerned. And boy, is our society ever materialistic. What do we, that's not just, I like having fancy things and I think about money all day long. A materialist who somebody believes that this is all that there is. Physical, measurable, able to be seen, heard, and discerned. That's all that exists. And now, I don't think anybody in this room thinks that, but we can act like that. And when you start to read things like, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, we start to raise materialist objections that we've imbibed even if we didn't mean to. Yeah, okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit. God, yeah, the Bible says God can heal the body, but you know, let's be realistic. Let's be realistic here. We know what is going on, and it's not fair to hold up that hope in front of people. Or we say, yes, yeah, okay, it's not fair for you, like last night, Tyler, to talk about joy and peace and hope when we know good and well people have really hard times getting over these things, and you're just making people feel worse. It's a profound lack of faith that we have sometimes when we think according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. And so tonight we're going to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I had to open with this that there may be the sin of arrogance in this place that refuses to abase itself before Christ. That's how you get saved, but you don't get up from that place You put off that old man and you put on the new one which is made after the image of Christ. And you begin to discern things spiritually. You want to see a big example of this that might hit close to home, but I'm really not trying to be edgy when I say this. The number of Christians for the last few years that have said things to the effect of the church needs to focus more on the political situation and less on the gospel because the problems are too serious to focus on this over here. That is a revelation of natural thinking. Not walking according to the spirit, walking according to the flesh. The church is to be God's spirit walking church. So that we can see what's behind really going, what's going on and know for real. And these are people who have got to be fools for Christ. 
You look at about any great man that the Lord used throughout history in a, in a miraculous, wonderful way. They almost always had some weird things about them. You just look about, I mean, we're, we're hopefully going to go see the new, uh, the new, what is it called? The Jesus movement or the Jesus revolution mo- movie about uh, the Calvary Chapel revival. And man, there were some weird people. But the Lord used them to do miracles and to call people into ministry and to prophesy and to wake up a dead church. And I've talked to my dad about this before. We, we were uh, lent a biography by, about a guy named Smith Wigglesworth. What a name is that, by the way. And um, he had some weird theology. But the Lord healed, confirmed thousands of people through this man and his preaching. And there's one story in particular that my dad and I were like, what in the world? Because he punched this old lady because she, he wanted the healing to, to happen to her and wanted to punch the sickness out of her. Once again, don't do that. And so I'm talking to dad and we're having this conversation like, what? But God used it, clearly used this guy. And people were healed and people were saved and churches were planted and missionaries were sent out. And he's doing stuff like this. And my dad made this comment that I feel was so wise. Don't tell him I said this, but it was such a wise thing. He said, when God wants to use somebody spiritually, according to the supernatural power of the spirit, he says the average person is too closed off to that stuff to be used effectively. They're too concerned about what it's gonna, what's going to happen. How's it going to look? What are people going to think about? Is, are we sure this is 100% what the Bible says? And he says, and sometimes God needs to raise up, he said, a weirdo to just have enough faith to do it. And God's willing to take all of the baggage with him. I mean, look at some of the people in the Bible. I mean, Paul was you know, confronting Peter to his face in front of everybody. What about Peter himself rebuking Jesus? There's that story. He denied Christ three times. I mean, everybody in church history you want to point to. What makes a difference is the spirit, the spiritual man. Turn with me to the book of Acts. This is, this is I realize I'm going longer on this than I wanted, but I think this is of the Lord. Acts chapter 1. This is after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And while staying with them, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Very important. He said, don't go preach anywhere until you've got my Holy Spirit power. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had an end times prophecy question. That was a good question because he had risen from the dead. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. I love that. He took them right back to what he wanted to talk about. Sometimes it can be frustrating when folks do that. They got the one thing they want to talk about. And then you kind of direct the conversation somewhere else and go, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, as I was saying, this is what Jesus does. Guys, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in power, just like John prophesied. It's going to come. And they say, I have a question, Jesus. What, is this the time where the, the kingdom is going to come to Israel? And Jesus goes, that's not for you to know, guys. But as I was saying, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He, this was what he had to say to them. 
and he ascends to heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was the promise of the Father. That's what Jesus told them to wait for. Now, this is very important. In the book of John, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, it said he breathed on them. Remember, ruach, pneuma, those words, the Holy Spirit, it can also mean breath. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But he told them, do not depart from Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What is going on here? Very briefly... There, there are a couple, I mean, obviously the Spirit is a person, but there's a couple different things that he does in the New Testament. One of them is he sanctifies and seals us and regenerates us unto salvation. Romans 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not have Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, applies the blood of Jesus to your heart, and you are saved. That's what happened in John chapter 21. But after that, Jesus told them, don't leave until you have salvation. No, Power. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is all about. The power of the Holy Spirit. And he came upon them. And Peter, scared, cowardly Jesus, rebuking Peter, proclaimed the gospel and thousands of people were saved. Instant megachurch, day one, by the Holy Spirit's power. Now, as the story moves on, they get arrested. They get threatened that they can't preach anymore in Jesus' name. So then in Acts chapter 4, after they've been warned by the government, they came back to pray and they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. I'm going to skip down here for time's sake. They're asking the Lord to help them. And they said in verse 29, Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Time out. Is it okay to pray for miracles? You better believe it. Because they did. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Note this. Same group of people were filled with the Holy Spirit again. Why does that matter? Because that means that you are always as saved as you're going to be. You can encounter the Spirit of God in a fresh way, and the Bible calls that being filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 8. The gospel goes out to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans believe. And in verse 14 of Acts chapter 8, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Why? Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. They had believed, they had been baptized, they were saved, but they had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John went down, laid hands on them, and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit's power. Acts chapter 10, 
Peter is preaching in the Gentile, Cornelius' house. That's a Roman name. This is the oppressor of Israel. And he begins to preach. And in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This time the baptism of the Spirit came before baptism by water. That was how they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had accepted them and they belonged in the church family. How important is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? How about in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is struck blind on the road to Damascus and God sent Ananias to go and pray for him. Ananias entered the house and laying hands on Paul said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was part of it for the church then. So much a part of it that if you flip over to Acts chapter 19, Apollos, great man of God, is preaching and Paul comes across some of the men that had heard him. And in verse 2, he said to them in Ephesus, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? Do you notice this? They didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so Paul questioned their baptism by water. That's how big a deal it was. If you haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit, who baptized you? Did they, did they know what they were doing? There were false teachers abroad. And they said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Paul... We don't, apparently Paul didn't realize that they had not been fully instructed in the gospel. The way he found out was when he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently this was the kind of question Paul asked people. This was the kind of thing he would check up on with believers he didn't know. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Or maybe Paul noticed that something was off about these Christians. They said they were believers. And he says, well, something's up. They're not walking in, in joy and peace like, like the other believers are. They seem to have second-hand knowledge of God. You know, they still have all of these issues and these problems. And he goes, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit? There's something missing. They said, we don't even know what you're talking about. He goes, you don't know what I'm talking about. You were baptized, weren't you? Well, of course we were. Well, weren't you baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, no, John's baptism. He goes, oh, okay. Because you guys heard from Apollos, right? Okay, let, let me tell you what's going on here. 
He says it was Jesus. And then as soon as they came up out of that water, he said, now we're going to lay hands on you and pray for you to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the power of God. I have just shown you the distinction that the Bible makes between salvation and baptism by water with power and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And also that this is not just, it's often called the second blessing. It's not a great term because this is something that can happen and ought to happen repeatedly. Ephesians, Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit as an imperative to a group of people he had baptized and presumably baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is something that is to matter to us as a church. Here's the thing. Jesus asks us to do impossible things. Do not be anxious for anything. Good luck. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Love your enemies. Rejoice when people abuse you and say all manner of evil against you. Go out. Preach the gospel to every creature. Lay your hands on the sick and heal them. If anyone has a demon, cast the demon out. How am I supposed to do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where Christianity stops being a philosophy and starts being real. It's not just I believe these things because they've been demonstrated to be true. Good, I'm glad. But have you encountered the presence of God's Holy Spirit, the power in your life? This is when the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and baptizes you, you're sanctified. Sins begin to fall off of you. Things that used to be such a struggle for you become easier evangelism just becomes the fire of your heart. And now when you preach to people and you tell them about Jesus, people start to get saved. Even if you feel like you're not doing anything different. Worship just becomes alive to you. Because now I'm not just singing. Now I'm, I'm having a connection with the living God. Your heart is lifted because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And not only that, the gifts of the Spirit are poured out. Over and over again, we read that when people were baptized with the Spirit, they spoke in tongues. That still happens all the time. To everybody? No. But God doesn't do anything except salvation for everybody the same way. Everybody's given, says, the, the varied gifts of God, the manifold grace of God. It's different, but the Holy Spirit works in you. When you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, sometimes you're given that gift of tongues. You praise the Lord in a language that you don't speak and you don't know where it's coming from. If you get filled with the Spirit, sometimes the, the gift of prophecy comes. You begin to say things, and not only are you, you feel like you're just saying something that is good and for the moment, but it turns out to be exactly what that person needs, and it drills down into their heart, and it becomes the word of God to them. The gift of encouragement, that when you encourage people, they're just buoyed up and lifted. Or exhortation, that's the let's go statement. We can do, that's exhortation, right? You should be doing this. That's an exhortation. The gift of healing. You lay your hands on people to pray for them and they begin to be healed. Gift of miracles. What's the difference between a healing and a miracle? Well, one involves the body and one involves just about everything else. The gift of knowledge. You know things about situations and people that you shouldn't know. 
the gift of discerning of spirits, you're able to tell when something is from God and when it's not. And there's even perhaps a reference to evil spirits there. There's special authority and power given. There's also gifts of teaching, gifts of love, gifts of administration, gifts of helps and giving and evangelism. The Holy Spirit pours out his power upon you. And that is what is needed in Calvary Chapel Trustville. We all need to be filled and baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you are not willing to be a fool for Christ, okay, God, I'll do anything. Just please not that gift of tongues thing. How dare you? How dare you approach God and tell him what you will and will not tolerate from his hand? I didn't mean it like that, but that's what you're saying. Fool for Christ. What if I, if I, I know if I start to pray for that thing, I'll break down weeping in front of everybody, so I'm just going to be quiet. Is your pride worth that much to you? Well, I'll do anything, Jesus, but please don't make me speak to my father about that issue. What did Jesus say? He who starts to plow and keeps looking back is of no use in the kingdom of God. The natural man cannot receive the, spirit, the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. We must be spiritual men. We need the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so that is what we are going to pray for right now. The question becomes, all right, what do we do? How do we get the Holy Spirit? Well, you can't buy him. Because Simon Magus tried that in Acts chapter 8. And Peter told him, may your money perish with you. For you thought the gift of God could be bought with money. There's only one thing that we are told to do in order to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it came in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your, holy, your heavenly father... Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Ask. It's the promise of the Father. You don't got to convince God to give you something He's already promised to give you. Isn't that nice? The hang-up is with you, friend. Not with God. That doesn't seem fair to say that to us. I have to say that to you because that might just be the thing that liberates somebody tonight. And the only other thing we are given is the laying on of hands, which means get other godly people to pray for you. So pray and pray together. So we are here at a prayer meeting in the middle of the week, at the beginning of the year, and we're going to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit.